This is the ZMAR Podcast. Elite Benefits of America helps small and mid-sized companies with their health insurance programs. And now, your host, Butch ZMAR. Welcome back to the ZMAR Podcast. I have a special guest. We have an employment attorney, Laura Ambalson. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Butch. I'm uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, not a problem. Can you give the, our audience a little bit of background on you and what, what you do and um, what, why employers call you? Sure, absolutely. So uh, I am the managing partner of the Chicago office of a law firm called Constangi Brooks Smith & Profit. And Constangi represents uh, employers in really anything related to employment law. So anything that touches the employment relationship. And what that means for me and my clients is a lot of um, kind of advice and counseling. So a lot of my clients will ask questions like, you know, we're making some new hires, but we have some concerns about what we're allowed to ask and what we're not allowed to ask. You know, can we do background checks and what are the rules? Can we ask people about whether they're, you know, uh, working remotely and if they have childcare, you know, things like that, to having me review employment agreements and offer letters and employee handbooks to make sure that those are in compliance. And then often, uh, you know, when there's some kind of dispute or issue, so an employee that makes an internal complaint or somebody who leaves and seems disgruntled or sometimes they get a, a nasty demand letter or a charge or a lawsuit, you know, all, all of those kinds of things I help employers to deal with. So that's, that's essentially my role. I'm sure for many, many, many years, your position of employment attorney has always been relevant to some degree in, in the workplace. But I, I almost think that escalated since uh, COVID for obviously many different reasons. But just between the remote statuses and how to handle employees, you know, different agreements that are set in place, as well as we're going to get to vaccines and masks and, you know, other compliance mm-hmm. issues that are coming up. But what are you seeing that any conflict that employers are running into as, I mean, I know the employers have already welcomed employees back to work. So we're already through some element of phases of, of employees um, returning to work. But what have you seen that you had to talk with employers about with the return to work? So, so as you, as you just touched on, you know, there's several kind of specific issues about vaccines and masks and that sort of thing. I'd say, I guess, looking big picture first, you know, that the biggest change that the past, uh, you know, 14 months or so with the pandemic has meant for my clients is really this much more high pressure um, need to know exactly what the current guidance from public health officials is and what the current, you know, regulation and rules are. And and the reason that's different is because you know employment law has always been an area that changes sort of year over year. In in the past, I've often done, you know, sometimes in January, sort of a like, here are the new laws that employers need to be aware of, you know, that just went into effect. You know, so that's that's often been the case, but it's more on sort of an annual uh, basis. Whereas what's happened since COVID started is sometimes month over month or even week over week, there are changes in what the employer's obligations are. So, you know, just as one example, We had, um, for most of the pandemic, OSHA, which is the, you know, federal government organization that enforces workplace safety rules, OSHA had guidance that said employers really needed to treat vaccinated and unvaccinated employees exactly the same as far as enforcing safety protocols. So whether it was, you know, keeping distance between them, making them wear masks when they were at work, you know, all those rules, what OSHA said was, you know, you can't have any distinctions for different groups of people. Then what you have a couple of weeks ago is the CDC makes 
what seems like maybe kind of a surprise announcement saying, actually, we don't think that vaccinated individuals have to wear masks, only unvaccinated. And then those two agencies, the CDC and OSHA, clearly were not really communicating about it because OSHA then that same day updates their website and basically says, well, the CDC just came out with new guidance. We have to reevaluate. Uh, stay tuned. And that's sort of what it has said since then. And, and so it really puts employers in this position where, you know, my recommendation all along has been don't try to replace your judgment for the public health officials. Go ahead and consult with the experts, you know, refer to or cite to that guidance when you're making a certain workplace policy or a workplace rule, because that's going to be your best defense if somebody at some later point says you acted unreasonably or you weren't sufficiently protecting your employees. You know, if you can point to the guidance at the time and say, I just did what the CDC or the Illinois Department of Public Health was recommending employers do, that's going to put you in the best potential legal position. And so when those organizations are changing their minds on a week over week basis or when they don't agree with each other, that creates a ton of uncertainty and this really, you know, kind of shaky ground for employers to be on. And employers are trying to plan and give employees an expectation of here's what the plan is going to be. You know, so here's here's our phased reentry or here's our policy and how it's going to go into effect over the next several months. And so that that's been a really, really challenging thing, I think, for really doesn't matter the industry, doesn't matter the size of the business. That that ever-evolving guidance, I think, has been the most unusual thing about this um, past year plus because of the pandemic. You know, when you were talking through that, it reminded me a lot when the Affordable Care Act was passed, because that's obviously what I do. And um, there was a lot of things held up in court, but there was a lot of the regulations still being enforced. So there was a lot of employers that are like, I'm going to wash my hands. I don't need to do this because they can't, the government can't figure it out. But the reality was, is that there was still a compliance rule in place because of the law. It was signed into law and they still had to comply. Mm -hmm. And so... I mean, these are two government bodies, so it's kind of interesting, the battle going back and forth. And I did hear a little bit about the OSHA requirement. I think it comes down to comfort of the employees in the workspace and then also uh, what is the best and safest thing for the employees going forward. I'm hoping the government would lead in good faith for some of these employers if they're actually trying to act in the best interest of the employees. But it's going to be tough as we move forward because the, obviously the argument there, and then of course you have politics, not, not necessarily politics, but personality differences inside the workplace and and whether they should be vaccinated versus um, not. And then of course the whole mask thing. And and I guess what, what are some simple steps that employers could at least softball it to make sure that they're still in compliant, but when it, when it comes around the, the mask requirement, um, you know, what what's the general softball rule just to make sure the employers are not putting people at at risk or or a discomfort for working for them? Yeah, that's a great question, Butch. I'd say, you know, on the mask issue, I do think, you know, the first and kind of easiest step for an employer is just make sure you have a clear written policy and whatever that policy is, enforce it the way that it's written. And the reason that's important is because, you know, all the all the rules or laws that existed before this pandemic started about, you know, anti-discrimination um, and things like that are still in place and still apply this kind of situation. And I think when we're, you know, say six months or a year from now in the future, the kinds of claims or the kinds of lawsuits that I am expecting to see are from employees who are going to say, 
you didn't apply that policy to everybody equally. You applied it to some people and not other people. You grant an exception for, you know, so-and-so, but not for me. And that is often, um, you know, sort of the start of a lot of employee disputes that then lead to litigation. And so if you're going to have a policy, for example, and, and you can, as an employer, you have a right to say, I don't, I don't care whether it's required by, you know, the government organization in my workplace, everyone m- must wear a mask. You, you can have a policy like that. Just be clear that that's your policy and enforce it, you know, equally against everyone. Similarly, you could, as an employer, have a have a policy that says we're not going to require masks um, for anyone who's vaccinated, but for anyone who is unvaccinated, we are. And you could say part of our policy is we're not demanding proof. It's a, you know, it's a good faith. You have to um, just kind of make your judgment based on which category you fall into. Um, and, and that's how we're going to treat it. And then, you know, as I said, similarly, just apply that universally to everyone. And so if you have a, you know, an employee that you don't like or trust very much who says, I'm vaccinated, I don't have to wear one, you know, if your policy is we're not asking for proof, then you can't ask that person for proof. But on the other hand, if you're going to have a policy that says we're going to allow you to be unmasked so long as you could prove you're vaccinated, then get that proof from everybody. Don't say, well, I've got some employees that I know are really trustworthy so I can take their word for it. And then there's other people that I think are less likely to be honest. So I need to see their cards, but I'm only going to ask them. You know, really the key is figure out what you want your workplace policy to be, write it down, distribute it to everybody, and then make sure that you're making all of your judgments and all your decisions in line with those policies. That's, that's really should be at the forefront for everybody. And you explained that pretty well. And I think some employers are going to go through some challenges with um, the vaccines and the mask. And, uh, you know, uh, just moving a little bit away from that topic, but still, you know, the whole return to work, you know, working remotely, we've seen from the employee benefits arena, not a whole lot, but there's some of them are shifting. And, and I think this is an area of topic that you work in where they're shifting a lot because their remote status, they're changing the employment status from um, 10, from W-2 to 1099. Yeah, and and I think this is the area you work in where there there there's a fine line where the, where what what becomes what's W two and what's ten ninety nine is that right? Yeah, so that that's really interesting. I actually have not seen a ton of that from my clients, but but I do think it brings up a really popular, I think, or common misconception, which is that you know someone who is an employee, meaning you know you as the employer are dictating what they have to do, what their work hours are, you know, who they report to, what the job expectations are, that kind of relationship has to be W-2. It is It is not your choice. It's not up to the employer. It's not up to the individual worker. That relationship is a W-2 relationship. And if you were to change that to make it a 1099 relationship, all you're doing is violating a variety of laws, both employment and tax laws. On the other hand, if you have someone who really is a contractor, they're not an employee, they're somebody who sets their own terms of work, you know, essentially the, the analogy that is often helpful for people is, you know, you as an individual homeowner, if you hire somebody to paint your house, you don't hire somebody, you know, asking them for their resume, you don't have them interview with all your family members, you know, you don't tell them, okay, well, I'm going to be outside supervising, you know, every bit that you do to make sure that you're clocking in at the right time, you're doing it the way I want. What you say is, here's the end product I want. I want my house painted this color. You're a professional. You know how to do it. I'm not going to have anything to do with the means or the manner in which you do it. I am just looking at the outcome. And that's what I'm hiring you to do is give me this outcome of this painted house. So similarly, the only time an organization should have a 1099 relationship 
where it's really a contractor is someone that you're saying, here's the outcome I want. You know, it's, it's the, here's the, you, you may, you know, very commonly will have like an IT vendor, you know, here's the outcome. I, I want you to help set up my network, you know, make sure my computers all work, but you don't tell them how to go about doing that. You know, you may have, uh, it, maybe some businesses have a janitorial, you know, I want you to empty the trash cans and, and clean it, but I'm not going to tell you how to go about doing that. You know, so, so it really is, a huge trap to fall into the concept that you could take one person who's doing a job as an employee and then have them change to becoming a contractor doing that same role. Because in most instances, that's just not possible. And all that you're doing is creating liabilities. Yeah. And, and you're right. It's not a huge demand, but I've seen some within even just my client base, but not like, it's not, it's, it's almost like you just hear the noise and, and some of it's going uh-huh. on and, and it got me thinking, like, wow, this is interesting. But also, they're even higher in 1099s more than they did before. Yeah. Well, there might be a trend, there may not, but I just know I've seen some of that shift. Now, another thing I, I've seen that, and I think this will be an interesting topic, is that uh, at least in 2020, our office had probably uh, a huge increase, probably one of the bigger years of new startup company transactions. So the pandemic actually created a lot of entrepreneurship out there. And then a lot, most of them are just doing the same job that they were doing. They just decided that they were going to put their own stake in the ground instead of doing it for somebody else. And that comes down to employment wording and contracts and non-competes. And so, and I know there's a lot of misconceptions um, for a lot of it out there. And you, you hear one side where it's trying to protect the book of business or the relationship and uh, with the customers or clients. And then the flip side is they're saying, well, you can't hold back somebody's ability to make a living once they leave your employment. And so can, can you provide some clarity on, on, on what employers should expect, especially if the, they have employees that are looking to going down that entrepreneurship road or even just working for another company because they see uh, the grass is greener somewhere else? Yeah, and I, I do think you're exactly right, which is that, you know, especially as kind of the economy shifted and moved in lots of different ways in the past year, I think that spurred a lot of people to say, you know, I, I want to work for myself. I think I can do this, you know, as you said, kind of putting my own stake in the ground. So so I do think that is a bit of a trend. Um, the answer about non-competes generally is, and, and this is a very lawyer answer, but it's always going to depend quite a bit on two things. One, what state we're talking about. So, you know, each state has different laws about this. So you have to be really clear about what state's laws um, govern the situation. And then two, what the industry is and kind of the specific details around that industry and those customer relationships. So, so as a general rule, though, I think the common misconceptions are on either extreme. So some people believe, no, non-competes are never enforceable. So this is this agreement I signed, you know, is worthless. I can throw it away. I don't have to worry about it. And that's incorrect. And then on the other hand, some people think anytime I've signed a non-compete, you know, now I'm essentially stuck. There's nothing I can do about it. It's going to be enforceable no matter what. And that's also not true. So the, the truth is somewhere in the middle, which is that some of them are enforceable and some of them are not. And, and the things that dictate are, are a couple of things. So if we're talking about Illinois in particular, Illinois basically looks at a number of factors. And one of those is what did the employee receive in exchange for this restriction? So the idea is, you know, when the employee signed that document saying, when you leave, you're not going to compete or you're not going to take any customers, what did they get for it? Did they get a signing bonus? Did they get, you know, stock options? Was there, was there something else beyond their regular pay that they were given? Um, And if the answer is nothing, then what Illinois courts have been saying is, 
then they better have stuck around and been in that role for at least two years after they find it, because otherwise the courts are saying it probably didn't get enough um, sort of what we call consideration, sort of value in exchange for what they're being asked to give up. Um, so that's, that's one thing in Illinois. Um, another thing has to do with how permanent are the relationships between the customers and the business? And so a lot of different industries have, I think, kind of a wrong idea about this, you know, especially industries where it's not an exclusive relationship. So, for example, if a, if a customer might be using several different vendors or several different companies to do the same thing, then it's going to be really hard to argue, yeah, we have near permanent relationships with our customers. They're with us, you know, for decades, and that's why it would be really unfair for our, you know, former employee to go and try to take those relationships because you have competitors that are servicing them at the exact same time. So so in those industries, it's very hard to enforce them. Um, there, there was also a good bit of press several years ago around uh, fast food establishments trying to enforce non-compete. So there was a there was a big case, Jimmy John's, the sandwich uh, shop got in trouble because they had had their you know, just they're like cashier slash sandwich makers signing non-competes. And the courts really kind of laughed them, you know, out saying, you think those things that you put on your sandwich are a secret? You, you have, you know, you have it out on display. Every customer that's ever walked into a Jimmy John's knows exactly what you put on a sandwich because they watch you do it. So you can't stop someone from going and working in a different sandwich shop arguing that that was somehow, you know, that somehow you have a, a near permanent relationship with those customers or that there's something highly confidential about the way they're making those sandwiches. And importantly, those are, you know, for the most part, low wage workers. And so it's really, really nearly impossible to enforce a non-compete against a low wage worker um, because there's just, there's too much detriment to those individuals. And there's too much, um, you know, kind of argument by the courts to say that business losing that, you know, $15 an hour worker is not actually harmed by having them go to Subway instead of Jimmy John. So we're not going to enforce that. So, so the, the short answer, I guess, is it really depends a lot on the situation. But I think if you are, uh, you know, a business that is concerned about, I may have people in key relationship roles with my customers, you know, looking to leave, then the best thing you can do is have an employment lawyer look at your existing contracts. Because I can probably look at the document and tell you, you know, do you have the key aspects that you need to have a chance of enforcing this in court? Um, and sometimes you don't. And, and the times that you don't is often a business that has, uh, you know, found their agreement for free online rather than working with someone, a uh, professional to draft it. Um, the other thing that I've seen happen, sadly, a couple of times is there are people or there are business owners who will hire counsel, good lawyers, to draft the agreement, but then they don't ever consult with the lawyer after that. And so one thing that I've seen happen a couple of times is you'll have an employee who signs an employment agreement with an enforceable non-compete. So you did that part right. Then the employee leaves. And when they're leaving, you give them some kind of separation pay, you know, for, for whatever reason. Maybe it's just something nominal, like two weeks. And you have them sign a separation agreement. The separation agreement can have and often has language that says this replaces any prior agreement. If it says that, and if you're not savvy enough as a business owner to pick up on that specific nuance, then you've totally negated the enforceable non-compete that you spent all that money to get right the first time. It just evaporates. It goes away by a document, again, that often you just found for free online and thought wasn't worth having a professional help you to, to put together. So so I think, you know, the I guess maybe the, the takeaway there is it really is complicated enough that you've got to have a specialist advising you on it. You cannot, you cannot get this uh, answered easily for free online. Unfortunately, it is just 
just too nuanced. You have to have someone who knows what they're talking about. Hey, gang. Ever wonder what it's like to be a small business owner? It's confusing. Weird expenses coming out of nowhere. And when you throw in health insurance, forget it. Nobody understands how that works. If you own a business, big or small, it's one of the biggest expenses you have all year long. And yet, we all wait until open enrollment at the end of the year, and then we think to ourselves, next year, next year I'll get a jump on it. And then it's another year of paying way too much. If you're a business owner, big or small, HR representative that wants to impress the boss, give Butch Zemar of Elite Benefits of America a call. Save yourself or your boss thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars a year. Reach out to Butch right now, 708-535-3006, or shoot him an email, butch at elitebenefits.net. And be sure to check out the Zemar podcast. Don't wait till the last minute. Put Butch Zemar to work for you now. And even some of those prepaid cards, I think sometimes the uniqueness of each contract can't be specified through a call center. It has to be through an employment attorney that um, has the expertise in that area. Because like you said, the wording and, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I've heard even in our industry where sometimes the wording changes um, from time to time, like offer letters and then what's in an employment agreement is completely different. And then and then how, how things are executed even on the way out and the, some of the wording had changed. And so the variables keep moving and so it's hard to keep up and, and it's always good to have them always reviewed by an attorney because it could come back to haunt you later or even just going into it. I think the back and forth and even from my personal experience that sometimes it's just the changing of terminology makes everybody uh, get back on the same page and then everybody's agree- in agreement. Uh, obviously the reason that the agreements are there is to protect both interests at some point when parties don't agree. And so that way there's no rating of, uh, of a business, you know, someone popping up shop across the street and trying to um, hoard over all the customers that are going in. It just kind of puts some element of protection just from a reasonable standpoint so that everybody can move on in life and, and not have to worry about anything. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think employers need to, they don't do it enough. I mean, of course, I know a lot of uh, employers, even clients that I, I work with, and I give the recommendation to contact an attorney, they're always fearful because they're like, oh, they're just going to rack up the bill. It's going to cost a fortune, but it's also going to cost a fortune if you don't put the documents together correctly. And so uh, you pay for a good, good lawyer one way or the other, right? Well, I mean, I, I do think it's a, it's a great example of you, you absolutely get what you pay for. I mean, there are a lot of instances where you don't have to consult a lawyer to get the kind of document you want, but the value or the enforceability of that document will be related to exactly how much you paid. So if you pay nothing for it, expect that that's what you've gotten. Um, you know, the other thing I was going to say, you know, in response to that point, I guess, about business owners who are nervous about talking to lawyers. I, from my experience, that's mainly people who have worked with not great lawyers in the past. You know, so there is, there is nothing unreasonable from a client's perspective about saying, I need to have a sense of what I'm budgeting for this. You know, I want to know ahead of time, what kind of fees are we talking about? And then have a conversation with the lawyer. If they give you a number that's not, you know, in the budget that you can afford, you know, let them know that. Say, wow, that's really a lot more than I was expecting. You know, is there a different way we can do this? And if the answer is there isn't, then probably that's not the right lawyer to work with. I mean, there's lots of lawyers at different price points, depending on the level of complication or the level of sophistication of what you're looking to achieve. And so I think a lot of, a lot of the concerns about, around the cost of lawyers is really more about trying to get matched up with the right one. So if you've worked with somebody that was not a good fit for your business before, that's probably more the issue than it is 
you know, kind of the industry as a whole. Sure. And, and most of the attorneys I know, including uh, yourself, I mean, we haven't engaged in any of the conversations, but I know a lot of the connect, uh, attorneys we're connected with and even outside where a lot of the, the ones that I feel that are good, they're willing to take a 30-minute a, a call with just about anybody to kind of evaluate to make sure they're in a good spot or not, or if there should be another follow-up call. So there shouldn't be any hesitation. And I, th- and I encourage anybody that's listening to this and that just contact even Laura and, and address those issues. And if it's a practice that she, uh, Laura's not part of, you're connected, well-connected with the many other attorneys that specialize in all different areas and that would be able to help out. So if anybody that was listening to this podcast, if they needed to get a hold of you to further the conversation we already had, or if they need to have other follow-up questions um, or they have interest in uh, engaging you, how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, uh, thanks. I appreciate that, Butch. Um, so email is probably the easiest. Uh, you know, my email address is lbalson, Balson's my last name, B-A-L-S-O-N, at constangi.com. Constangi is kind of a uh, tricky one to say, but it's just like it sounds, C-O-N-S-T-A-N-G-Y.com. Um, also, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I think LinkedIn has all my contact info. Um, and, you know, on Constangi.com website, my bio is available there as well. So, and, and totally agree with what you said, you know, that initial kind of free consultation between a lawyer and a client, I think it's helpful for both sides. It's helpful for the lawyer to make sure that this is the kind of client that it makes sense for, you know, us to represent. And it's also helpful for the the prospective client to determine, you know, is this somebody that fits within my budget and understands what my goals are? And, you know, and if it's not, you know, as you said, I know know plenty of other lawyers that I'm happy to pass somebody along to. I I don't think it's in anybody's interest, you know, to proceed along a path that's not going to be a great fit. You're much better off saying, you know, this isn't quite right for me, but I've got a colleague who I think would be perfect. Let me put you in touch with them. So I think that's very common. This has been awesome. In the show notes, we'll have uh, links to get connected for, between the website and LinkedIn. And so that way, if anybody needed to reach out, they, they'll, it'll be a lot easier. And I appreciate your time and coming on the podcast and sharing some insight for employers. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Uh, thanks so much.